There's no certainty, only opportunity. Well, I think you can be pretty certain that if anyone does show up, Creed, you'll black bag every one of them. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Hey folks, it's Pete with Starting Strength to talk about all the events we have coming up. So let's talk seminars. Next seminars are all going to be in Wichita Falls. February 5th through the 7th will be the first seminar of 2021. Then April 16th through the 18th. And then June 11th through the 13th has just been added to the list as well. And those are all in Wichita Falls. For lifting camps coming up, we'll be in Houston covering the deadlift and the power clean at Starting Strength Houston on January 16th. Then we have a self-sufficient lifter camp on January 9th in Wichita Falls where we cover the squat, the press, the deadlift, how to film your lifts, and how to diagnose your own technique. For squat and deadlift camps coming up, we have January 31st in Miami, Florida with two spots left. And then we have a mix of strength lifting, USA weightlifting, and strongman meets in Omaha going on at Testify Strength and Conditioning March 13th all the way through June 26th. All of our starting strength gyms are open and operating where you can come in and train with a coach for less than 30 bucks a session. We keep adding cities to the list and more to come. To find a location near you or to request a location or more information in general, head over to locations.startingstrengthgyms.com. And as usual, for any of the events that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. It's Friday. I mean, what other day would it be? Friday is the day we are here with Starting Strength Radio. And I think you all have gotten used to that by now. And, uh, you know, if you're watching this on Saturday, hey, catch up. Right? I mean, we've been here a whole day and you're just now watching it on Saturday. What the hell is wrong with you? We're here with our friend John Miller today. John's a starting strength coach, and he's currently going to school at Yale. So, uh, for a for an MBA, is that right, John? Yeah, correct. Well, let me just start off by saying, la di da. <laughs> <laughs> so, why do we want to talk to John today? Well, John's got some interesting uh, ideas about uh, uh, the fitness industry and uh, how, specifically, how uh, military veterans can find their way into what we are referring to as the new fitness industry here at uh, Starting Strength Gyms. Uh, John, I appreciate your, your time today. Um, Give us a little background on your personal situation and how you're, uh, uh, you you come to uh, uh, contact us about this and, and want to talk about uh, uh, this kind of program that we're working on with, uh, with military veterans and plugging them into jobs in, in the new fitness industry. Absolutely, and thanks so much for having me. So my story begins in the Army. I was an infantry officer for eight years, 
Um, the last job that I had was a striker infantry company commander at Fort Hood. Um, I actually attended the seminar. The first seminar I went to was at Wichita Falls the week after I took command and started implementing starting strength uh, to the best of my abilities uh, with my company. Uh, my command was cut short by a training accident. Uh, I was injured pretty seriously, and so I spent the last year of my time in the military uh, rehabbing from a spinal cord injury. Um, ended up getting medically retired, although to be fair to the uh, to be fair to the army, if I wanted to stay in, I could have. They would have found something for me to do. It just didn't match with my interests, so I got out and had about a year off. Um, and you know, through the process of recovery, and then in that year gap. I used starting strength um, to get better and pursued the credential. I uh, got certified in 2018, uh, right before I started grad school, uh, like you said at Yale. And I was on my way to being a, you know, aspiring management consultant, uh, following in the pretty traditional path uh, out of business school. And uh, I was in a recruiting meeting when I got a phone call from one of my former uh, platoon members telling me that um, a guy named Dan Harden, who he used to serve with, uh, committed suicide. And, you know, Dan was the kind of guy who, after loading up our buddies onto the medevac bird, missing limbs, volunteers to carry the mine detector. He, you know, wanted to carry extra weight to ease the burden on his teammates. And, you know, for a guy like that, the turnout at the funeral was pretty strong, and it ended up being a, a reunion of sorts, and I got looking around the table, and knowing what you know these men were capable of in service, seeing them struggle really, uh, really stuck with me. So I abandoned any aspirations of, of going down the traditional MBA route and started my own business. Um, the business is called Outlaws Incorporated. It's named after the platoon I served with. And what we do is we help the soldiers that fall through the cracks find meaningful work uh, and guide them through the transition process. Primarily interested in skilled trade jobs, although for the past year I've been working on a project with starting strength gyms. You know, because I know the value of the program and the many ways in which the gyms are different from the classical model. Um, Starting Strength Gyms hits all the criteria we look for in employers. They're people-focused, they provide structure, they have some basis and values in serving the community. So it's the ideal place for veterans. So uh, we have one gym currently at the final stages of approval for the GI Bill. And what this means is that uh, separating service members can earn extra money to help ease the financial burden of switching careers while they're going through the apprenticeship program. And we hope to expand it. And that's really where my story ends, but I just want to add on a personal rip. I feel personally indebted to you for, you know, being able to walk today, frankly. And I'm sure we'll get into the details of that rehab later. But if it hadn't been for starting strength and the clarity that you bring to, you know, stress recovery adaptation and, and physi physiological adaptations, there is a good chance I would not, you know, have exceeded all the expectations of my providers so i guess i'll pause there and see where you want to go well uh i think that uh uh 
you know, the, the expectations of your providers are very low. Uh, I'm, I'm not prepared to take credit for anything that you have personally accomplished, although I'm proud to have been able to provide a theoretical framework for you to view uh, the process within. And I think that, uh, I think we've done a, a service uh, in terms of developing the stress recovery addict adaptation model. Uh, and uh, in, in reality, uh, more therapy providers need to get up off their dead asses and adopt this approach because it works every single time. Your situation demonstrates that. Uh, Brian Jones's situation demonstrates that. Uh, countless other people that we have worked with in terms of rehab have demonstrated that the prior therapy paradigm is wrong and that the one we have developed is much more uh, useful. So uh, we're proud of, of what you have accomplished. So let's, let's, since we're on that subject, let's talk about your injury and what actually happened. Yeah, so you'll get a kick out of this. Uh, the mechanism of injury was a, it was a fall from a striker, which is a big eight-wheeled uh, armor personnel carrier. And it was from about a height of five feet. What made it particularly dangerous is a piece of safety equipment. So something called the gunner's restraint harness. It's basically a seatbelt mm -hmm. that connects around your shoulders and attaches to the floor, you know, to prevent you from being thrown out in the event of an ID strike or a rollover. Well, I had spent my entire career as a light infantryman and vehicles were new. And I think at, you know, the time of the injury, I had been in a striker maybe six or seven times, you know, and I, I'm commanding a company of striker infantry. And so, like an idiot, I, I released from the quick-release handle of the floor, which meant that there was this little snap hook dangling between my legs. And I get out of the vehicle to dismount, climb up over the hood, sit down, and push myself off. And that snap hook got caught on a bolt on the striker. And what that meant was, as my torso went forward, my body was yanked backwards. It and you can grabbed you by the leg, momentum. I guess, right? Yep, and so um, rapid, violent extension of the neck. I, I completely evulsed and shattered C4, C5. I pushed the disc into my spinal cord and had a um, uh, central cord injury is, is how they characterized it. Luckily, the, uh, the OIC of the range is a, was a former Special Forces medic. And so as I'm, as I'm coming to, you know, I can't feel anything below the neck. I can't move. All I see is dirt and taste blood. I hear, you know, a lot of hubbub and, you know, thank God for Enrique Zelaya for being there, for saving my life, you know, because he knew how to prevent them from moving me um, and, and doing further damage. So, so that, that was the injury. Um, you well, know, that would have been a hell of a lot easier to... That would have been real easy to screw that up, wouldn't it? You know, right, I mean, right. in a situation, was... somebody doesn't know the nature of that injury and tries to move you and tries to get you uh, uh, sorted out onto a stretcher and everything, that could have just killed you 
real, real, exactly. real, real, real easily. So yeah, the guy was yeah, that's a <laughs> providential situation there, wasn't it? It, it's the first of many um, uh, lucky events uh, surrounding this whole occurrence. But, you know, the next 48 hours are touch and go um, in terms of, how, you know, what, what the exact diagnosis was. Um, I think I sent over some, some footage of the hole that was in the spinal cord. Um, and I ended up at Baylor Scott and White. And the neurosurgeons there um, realized there's no transection. And their care plan was to leave me in the collar for six weeks in the hospital, take off the collar, and then flex and extend my neck. And if I further damage my neck or my spine, they, they said, then we'll operate. And if not, well, then you're on your way to healing. And... Speaking of luck, I happen to be fortunate enough to be married to a uh, physician who, through her network, got a second opinion, and they said, that's crazy, don't do that. And a couple days later, I think five or six days later, I was in San Antonio um, getting excellent care. They did an ACDF, which is an anterior cervical discectomy and fusion. Uh, right. Once they took the disc out, completely relieved all the pressure on the spinal cord, and it was just yeah. That seems like a, a, a more intelligent approach to that injury than just waiting six weeks to see what would happen. Uh, I mean, you leave a nerve compressed for any length of time. Well, the nerve is damaged, and uh, this was a very important nerve. <laughs> Uh, to not be damaged. I mean, so, this whole time. I wonder what possessed them to think that that would be a good way to do this. Did you ever have a conversation with them about that? You know, we were we were looking forward, so we 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 did look back, uh, and I think uh, I did hear an explanation at one point. But you know, that period I was so had such tunnel vision, was on so many drugs. Right. Um, you know. And during this period, also, I, I still didn't have any uh, motor function, bowel bladder, below the, you know, uh, anything below the neck. And so um, <laughs> I, I do remember, though, one of the, the neurosurgeons check, doing a checkup, and he had forgotten his uh, little reflex hammer. And so he just starts looking around the room and finds a flashlight, takes a flashlight and starts banging on my feet with it. Um, and he just nods and says, yeah, he's fine. <laughs> he walked out. <laughs> well, well, it's a good thing you're fine. <laughs> sounds like it could easily right. have gone the other way. Oh, exactly. So you got better, and you're all healed up, and you've uh, this. When was the? What was the date of that injury? That was back ten uh, years ago. September twenty. September twenty seventeen. Oh, so it's just about three years, four years ago, three and a half years right. ago now. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, the so you the had been training prior to the injury, right? Yep. I I had just finished my own LP, um, and I th I probably discovered starting strength through um, uh, Brett McKay's videos. I'm pretty sure that was sort of like how I mm -hmm. how I found, and then. Um, 
you know, attended the seminar almost immediately after because what I was hearing was, you know, you know, things that had been in the back of my head going through the, the military fitness paradigm and the functional fitness and like you, whatever the fad was, you name it, I, you know, tried it out at one point in my military mm-hmm. career. But in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, you know, I feel like this is overcomplicated. I feel like all I need is, is some sort of structured progression, but that wasn't what everybody else was saying and all the fit right. people that I looked up to. So, um, yeah, I, I had just finished the LP. I, you know, and as it's sort of a, uh, testament to the success of the program, I didn't run once from when I took command to when I took my first PT test as a commander and max the run. And I sort having of did not that as run. an experiment, you know, having we, not run. We try to tell people that that will happen. But nobody believes you. Nobody believes. Everybody thinks they have to run in order to be able to run. A uh, guy in his 20s well, can I, run whether he runs or not. But nobody believes that. So, you know. I was a pretty scrawny guy to begin with. So, Well, you had no trouble running then, did you? <laughs> exactly. Scrawny people yeah, run pretty well. It's we've, important to point out noticed. he's an infantryman too. He's not, you know. Yeah. I mean, he's not just spending his time sitting at a desk or whatever. Uh, yeah, he's and, not just right. sitting around. In, in other ass. words, he's, typically it's the guys who think they need to run all the time. And here's a guy who just didn't run. Right. Well, uh, maybe we'll get a an article out of John about not running and then running. <laughs> That'd be real good. To, maybe you need to write that as an article for us. We're always looking for stuff to run on the website, and that would be good. That would be, yeah. Would be real good. So, uh uh, here we are. It's 2021. All right. It's 2021. You're three and a half years after the injury. And you've been okay for, what, three years now? How long did it take you to get to where you were, you know, up and around? And Yep, yep. I was, I was training um, four weeks out of the hospital. Uh, so, you know, leaving in a wheelchair, progressing to cane. So they did um, the surgery, and that immediately relieved the pressure and just, you know, fixed the lesion, exactly. basically. And then you had to heal up from the surgery. And once that was right. – I'll bet you very clearly remember waking up after that surgery and being able to feel your TT. <laughs> I'll bet you clearly uh, remember that. <laughs> don't you the first the first time i could use the bathroom on my own i cried oh i understand man i <laughs> i understand our be, boys you know being boys our tts are very important to us uh i remember when i had my uh neck surgery back in uh 1999 i had a a real bad uh Ostefite mashing into my arm, and it was the pain was horrible. It was just all I could do to, you know, get through the day. And uh, it it got so damn bad that you know, it just surgery became uh, not optional. And I remember waking up in a recovery room and looking down at my arm and saying, "This is the first conscious thought I had. The pain's gone." And then I went back to sleep. Yep. But I clearly remember that. 
and uh, I'm sure you remember the same damn thing, only on a order of magnitude more uh, grateful than uh, than I was. And uh, so you were you were training four weeks post up. Boy, it is a good thing your wife got you some better advice than yeah. We're just gonna let you lay here in your own piss and shit for the next six weeks, uh, and uh, just see what happens after that. But uh, yeah, that's a that's another show. I'm I'm real interested in uh, why they thought that was a good idea, but you don't know and. Hell, they don't know either. So, eh, we're glad you're, we're glad you're all right. So, you, uh, you had a good friend that committed suicide after, after having served with you guys in the army, and uh, I don't want to go into that as much as I as I want to, because that that kind of thing's not. Uh, pleasant to talk about but what I want what do you think could have prevented that from happening well I had lost touch with Dan after I you know was reassigned and progressed on with my career Um, so I can't comment on his you know family situation or what else is going on in his life I will say that suicide has been a non insignificant part of my military career, unfortunately, as both investigating um, other suicides, having close friends commit suicide, um, and you know, some well, common threads that I, I think guess are as relevant. company commander, that's part of your responsibility, right? To investigate things like that in within right. your command, yep. right? Right, and typically it's 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 other units that you, if you're an investigator, they, they bring in somebody from outside to mm-hmm. avoid any conflicts of interest. But, you know, um, this is sort of a half-baked thought I've been, I've been, you know, throwing around my head. But on the line of duty investigation form, this, this standard form you fill out any time a service member dies, there's a block that says, is this, was this, you know, person mentally sound? And for a suicide, you automatically check no. And it has to be a medical provider that signs off. Because by definition, if they commit suicide, they, you know, that's an irrational action. And so I was... And I don't know that that's true. I mean, would you agree with that in all instances? Would you agree that anyone that kills themselves is irrational? Well, you're exactly, you know, uh, picking up on what direction I'm going in, which is, what would you have to believe for that to be rational to you. And I think reframing suicide as uh, the result of some combination of conditions that make it seem like a rational choice. Could be you're you're in an altered state, whatever. But if we take a step back and just, you know, think about military service in general, you're taking young men and women you're conditioning them to be blindly obedient, which is a, a necessary function for anybody who's joining the military. Mm-hmm. And I'm not making any normative claims here about 
what should or should not be the case, but that's just a fact. And you put them in an extremely structured environment, and if they leave after three years without achieving a lot of rank and responsibility, the entire way in which their world is framed is reversed. Pure right. structure, zero autonomy, to pure autonomy and zero structure. Right. And I think that's pretty traumatic. It was traumatic for me, and I was a captain with a college degree, with a, you know amazing support network, and I didn't have to worry about food on the table or a roof over my head. I was, you know, the entire time I was going through the re- rehab process, I was crossing paths with young soldiers who didn't have the support network, who mm-hmm. uh, didn't have the life experience that I had, who didn't have the family support. Um, and, you know, I could see the difference in my outcomes compared to theirs. Mm-hmm. And that was well, one of the, you know, the, the way, uh, uh, when you take a kid and stick him into a military situation like that, you're essentially taking away his adulthood in some sense. In terms sure. of uh, the fact that adults decide for themselves what's best and then do that. Or at least they should and they try to, that sort of thing. Uh, but if you, if you enter a military situation... You're ceding your autonomy for a period of time. Now, if it's, uh, you know, it's four years, and uh, you're a typical little 18-year-old puke who's not worthy of autonomy, basically, this is a, this, this additional structure that uh, is provided by the military can be very, very helpful. Uh, I know that when I was 18, I probably should have gone in the military instead of going straight into college because I had no business being in college. I was just a little undisciplined little turd. And I would have benefited from the structure that would have been provided by the military. But that was 1974, and the military was not popular back then because of, we'd just gotten our asses out of Vietnam, and there was a lot of resistance to the idea my parents were not supportive of uh, the military my dad had been in World War two and he had he thought it was kind of stupid for anybody to voluntarily go into the service and uh, and so I uh, I didn't uh, get the advice I probably should have gotten is to go into the military but so in some in some ways it postpones adulthood and for some people it actually uh improves the transition into adulthood but i think you uh, your your comment is is valuable in that you you go from uh when you go into the military you're in a you're in a a situation of very little autonomy and uh, you're taught blind obedience and then they they get rid of you in four years and here you are uh, you get off the bus, and for the first time, you've had to had to make a decision about what the hell you're going to do today, because yep. it's been, been decided for you for quite some time. Exactly, and you've been a part of a common purpose. You've had there's been no question about when you put that uniform on and you walk through the airport, 
and people look at you, what you represent. Mm-hmm. And you take that identity away from somebody, you know, it's, it's a challenge that has to be dealt with. And I, um, you know, this, is, this means a lot to me. Um, the, there's a long list of young veterans that I served with who struggled in and out of service. A lot of times just because it was, you know, they just got a bad, got dealt a bad hand or, you know, unfortunately didn't have a great chain of command or, you know, a series of bad experiences or mistakes that they couldn't recover from. And that set them back irrevocably from what they're actually capable of, of achieving. And, you know, just to bring things back to the gyms and their opportunities for apprenticeship, you know, that's precisely filling the gap for mm-hmm. those young right. men and women who could use that. Right. It provides a, a framework for the, for the decisions they're going to make at work while at the same time requiring of them the, uh, the resourcefulness to apply that framework in a variety of different situations. So it's kind of halfway between blind obedience and absolute autonomy. And uh, I see your point. Well, there, there should be some, you know, I think the process works best if it's gradual. So like, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a young veteran who I recently placed in a concrete um, installation firm in South Carolina, simple things, you know, what's my budget? How am I gonna fill out my emergency savings over the next few months paychecks? Um, Where am I gonna live? How am I commuting to work? Um, Do I have the tools and the equipment I, you know, that are necessary to do this job successfully? Walking somebody through that sounds trivial, but when, you know, a part of a a, uh, comprehensive plan to get them from point A to point B, it's tremendously valuable. and, you know, the predictability provided by an apprenticeship program, any apprenticeship program really, but, you know, the, the gym one specifically is another example of bringing, bringing that structure gradually into their lives to the, until they're ready to, you know, go out on their own uh, in a, you know, more uh, complete sense. I think it's, uh, it's going to work out well uh, for us and for for you guys because um, one of the challenges that any business has in uh, selecting people who want to come on and work for them is the is the selection process is it can be hit or miss we don't know these people we don't know their background they fill out an application you know sometimes they're completely full of shit you know, we've had some experience with that recently. People who are just absolutely unsuited for the position. And uh, if we've got a if we've got a choice between some kid we don't know and some kid with a military background, he's vetted for us. I mean, he, the fact that he was not dishonorably discharged is a <laughs> it's a an important, an important thing, you know. Um, and I, I think this is going to work out quite well as the as the system of gyms grows. 
if we could uh, if we could take a majority of the people that are interested in working from us out of uh, veteran status and into starting strength coach status, that's that's a wonderful thing for everybody. Saves us time and gives them something instructive to look forward to doing. And, and maybe there's a feedback loop where it gets back to, you know, you have a coalition of people that can help incorporate some of this successfully in the military where mm-hmm. I failed, you know? Well, that's a, that's a very good point. Uh, the military, and uh, you and I discussed this briefly the other day, the military is, uh, is famous for not being... Um, adaptable right they they like to appear adaptable but the military is uh here in 2021 the military is uh still in the job of killing people and breaking things that's what we have the military for is to kill people and break things now you can uh you know say that the military is, uh, uh, does good things all over the world and all this other shit, but the, and, and that may be a part of it, but the, but the primary uh, function of any military is to kill people and break things for the purpose of fighting a war and winning it. And in 2021, running five miles doesn't really have a lot to do with any aspect of killing people and breaking things because of the, the changes in, in killing people and breaking things technology over the past 70 years. Uh, we don't do things now the way we did in World War I. And uh, nonetheless, the military bases basic training on endurance, on running, on 900 push-ups. 900 sit-ups, this sort of thing. Things that are absolutely pointless with respect to the physical adaptation necessary for the role of the military in 2021. Now, you and I can sit down and have a rational discussion about this, and you and I understand completely that that is, in fact, the case, that force production, instead of... uh, Submaximal repetition of movement is much more critical to the physical mission of being in the military. But if you get uh, you get myself and you and two or three other officers involved in the discussion, and everyone agrees that that is absolutely true, uh, nothing will still be done because the whole gigantic aggregate mass of the military bureaucracy is a bureaucracy. That's all it is. It's a bureaucracy. And bureaucracies do one thing and one thing only. They perpetuate themselves while assuming no personal responsibility for any aspect of that perpetuation. That's what they do. All bureaucracies function that way. And As a result, bureaucracies become about the process, not about the outcome. 
but about the process. And as long as the process is being followed, then everybody within the bureaucracy's ass is covered. So you and I come along and we say, well, we would like to make basic training uh, into uh, a six-month novice linear progression uh, instead of six months worth of running five miles. And in and amongst that novice linear progression, everybody's getting stronger and there's more time now for actual actual teaching them things about killing people and breaking things and making them better soldiers, stronger soldiers, better soldiers, because now more time is freed up because the novice linear progression doesn't take but a couple of hours, three days a week. That would be more efficient, but it's not going to happen because of the nature of the military bureaucracy. It's not going to happen. And if we, me and you, and all of us involved in starting strength can expose more military people to the idea that that's, that forms the basis of the novice linear progression, five pounds of workout on basic exercises that, that have the capacity to be trained for a long period of time, then maybe some of it will get will bleed back up into the uh, upper echelons of the bureaucracy. I don't think it will. But wouldn't it be cool if it did? <laughs> I, I do have some lessons learned if there are uh, leaders in the military out there interested in doing this. You basically need three ingredients, uh, realistically. One is supporting your chain of command, which I had. And I achieved that uh, by using the Army's own doctrine against it. I, I used the eight-step training model. I built you know, all the PowerPoint slides. I justified it with quantitative uh, indicators of success. Second thing you need is equipment. And this is uh, the first obstacle I hit which is crazy because out of the back door of my office was a warehouse full of exercise equipment owned by some civilian agency on post that we couldn't get access to because <laughs> nobody knew who the approving authority was. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, was it I, every day I would park my, no, it was because it was from like the, the eighties. It was like, you know, old, uh, racks, Barbells that were really bad shape, but WD forty taking yeah, the motor pool fix fine. Those. Uh, they even had uh, the old cast iron plates that were hundred pounds each. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean they had good, they had you know usable stuff, and I mean for soldiers that's exactly what you want. You don't want a brand new no power rack. Right? It's not necessary. It's not necessary. Yeah. one of the one yeah. of the uh, advantages of of the application of the novice linear progression to basic training is it doesn't cost anything. I exactly. mean, compared to the, the money that the base had spent on all five of those gyms that are scattered all over the, all over the property there, we're talking about 5% of that money. You know, we're, we're talking about no money at all. And this is, you know, I mean, I, I hate to be cynical, John, but, the fact that there's not really any money in in a in a contract for this 
might mitigate against somebody advocating for that contract because, I mean, uh, you know, the the Army just recently implemented that uh, silly-ass trap bar deadlift into the PT. I wonder how many trap bar deadlifts Sorenex sold the U.S. military as a result of that. You think that money might have had something to do with that decision? Gosh, I don't know. That might not be a fair accusation, but it does cross the mind of a cynical civilian such as myself. Uh, well, there's yeah, there's cynical and then there's jaded because yeah. my reaction to all that was, oh, God, at least they're finally using something that looks like a deadlift. You right. Know, I, I was just thankful about that. Um, yeah. But, but if, just, if you don't mind, I can finish that point. Yeah. The the third ingredient is time. Right. And the the daily PT formation that I had for a company of 152 uh, soldiers on the books was maybe 30 soldiers because everyone else was tasked out for things that had nothing to do with our mission. And this, you know, leaders have been wringing their hands about this for as long as I've been in the military. And the best we can hope for is some mitigation. The taskings are never going to go away. But commanders can uh, do this if those three ingredients are in place. And expectation management means this is a multi-month process for most units unless you have a complete reform from the top down. And when is the last time such a thing occurred? A complete reform from the top down. 1775. That's the last time that occurred. Right? I, you know, this is, uh, this is something I used to worry about. I used to, I get, you know, we get, we've been asked about this, uh, over and over and over again over the over the course of 15 years of doing our seminars uh what do you think uh would be the best thing that could happen with starting strength what would you like to get done and i've said since the beginning i would love to re be able to completely reform basic training for all of the military because it's the most important thing that we could do to make a radical immediate inexpensive improvement in combat readiness for everybody involved in getting a government paycheck for being in the military. And it's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen because always remember the following maxim. The facts, although interesting, are irrelevant. Uh, the fact that uh, our way of physical preparation works better than their way of physical preparation is is true, but it doesn't matter that it's true. It just it, all that matters is that this is what they're going to do, and why they're going to do it that way is involves the fact that they've always done it that way. 
and everybody in the decision-making capacity is perfectly comfortable with continuing to do it that way. And the fact that it doesn't work as well as something else is is just not interesting to them. You know. So uh, here we are in 2021. We need to get these kids who are leaving a military commitment headed in a better direction than just turning them loose and uh, letting them make their own mistakes. Because sometimes the kids in that position make terrible mistakes. And it's just because, you know, some people make mistakes, and that's just the way it is. Uh, I'm, I'm happy that you see the possibility, the possibilities that present themselves with uh, involvement of this particular demographic with uh, our method. Uh, tell me about how you came to that conclusion. I mean, it really started with the rehab. So I was primed uh, as I came out of surgery to think yesterday um, I could move my arm to touch my nose. Today I'm going to try and pick up a spoon because to me that was five pounds. Yes. And then, you know, you can follow, you can see right. the progression from right. the first five time pounds is in scare to... quotes. I hope everybody understands. That. <clears throat> five yeah, pounds exactly. means increments, exactly. right? Right. And when you're, when you've got a catheter in and you can't move anything below the neck, small victories matter. And, you know, <clears throat> to me, the psychology of the, the SRA model and the manner in which you've pre, you know presented it and you know actively gone for simplicity here um, is really fascinating to me because I think that it, within that uh, approach is the keys to a lot of the success that I experienced personally at least um, and you know just to clarify for our listeners I wasn't waiting until I could get the barbell on my back to apply this model. You know, I was standing up from a chair. I was doing planks in my room, you know, um, just doing occupational therapy things. Whatever I could do yesterday, I was trying to go five pounds more. And, <clears throat> and look, I, I'm not prepared to make, you know, categorical claims about spinal cord injury rehab, but, um, that, you know, having a framework for success, for incremental improvement on top of a strong support network was, a, you know, an effective recipe and it's easily replicable. And, you know, I think one thing so you talked about cynicism, like it, another thing that really struck me was as I was doing this rehab on my own, I was watching, you know, or experiencing also what was being provided as the solution or the, the, the protocol from the providers and it was really depressing because it you know for example i used to drive down once they finally scheduled my um my uh spinal focused pt rehab that had to be referred out once they finally did that i used to drive my appointment in austin and then immediately drive to luke's barbell club and learn and train there 
like in the same day, you know? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm in the uh, PT office throwing a medicine ball and flex extending my shoulders and, and all this other silly stuff. <laughs> Just dance, dance practice. Sure, sure. And it's all very nice, well-meaning people who are running this stuff, you know, and, and I, I would hate to imply that, you know, I would ever attack, you know, them personally. Well, it's, it's, not their in, there's, it's not their intentions that are the problem. Sure. You know, they haven't been prepared adequately by their educational structure. They don't understand that... The, the, the way I've always thought about this is they don't understand that they are there to provide stress from which you can recover and adapt. Their paradigm is that the stress was the injury and that everything that happens uh, – after the injury is uh it can can be basically the same thing in terms of every time they go in they give you the same medicine ball they give you the same little squeezy thing to use with your hands they give you the same little uh band to do your little silly ass external rotation stuff on despite the fact that that's not the nature of the injury they give you the same things over and over and over again without any awareness of the fact that they are there to create a stress which you are there to progressively recover from does that kind of describe what what you experienced yeah absolutely i mean i i repeatedly got the impression that um they had never had a um patient uh who left the office to go continue the rehab process. I mean, it, I think, I think the, the sword cuts both ways. In other words, uh, they, not only were they approaching it from a different, you know, philosophy or paradigm or whatever you want to call it, but they, their day to day patient that they're used to seeing expected to show up, do the reps that of, you know, external rotation and if it didn't work, then on to the next, you know, mm. provider. Um, so it, I, I was certainly, um, you know, like an alien to them in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure they just they're just not prepared to think about it the same way we do. And. Uh, I don't know. That's a that's a damn shame. Uh, in terms of the time and money wasted worldwide on rehab, uh, it's just well, a damn shame. I, I don't know if I don't know if this gives you any hope, but you know, I used to be one of those people who thought it was important to you know foam roll and you know do mm -hmm. have. Variability, you know, I, I, I certainly used to think differently and uh, I continually, um, you know, try to have an open mind. But so, you know, 
there's there's nothing that says that that people can't over time, you know, change their minds and learn new things. Oh, I, I I'm completely aware of that. It's just that the problem is that uh, people in this situation uh, refer to the authority of their educational background. I mean, you finally get into PT school. That's hard to do, right? You finally try, try hard to get it. Getting into PT school is harder than getting into medical school because there are fewer slots, because there are fewer PT schools. So the, uh, the tendency is to, now that I've gotten into PT school, most people don't go in there and say, hold on, just a minute. You guys are all full of shit, you know? It's just, it's not humans. That's not human behavior. This was hard to get into. They must be right. And so I'm just going to do what I'm told. I'm going to think the way they teach me to think because I fought like hell to get in here and be taught this. And uh, as a result, uh, a lot of people just don't know a lot of stuff. They think they, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people know things that are not right. And they are unwilling to question the paradigm. Uh, we see this an awful lot these days. Lots and lots of people that should know better are behaving in ways that make no sense now. And this is just one little example of that. But uh, I don't know. I think maybe if... Uh, if we made better inroads into physical therapy, that might be the way into the military. But I don't have any any particular designs on on being able to actually accomplish either one of those uh, very important things, just because there's too much lined up against us. So what it boils down to is we're responsible for ourselves, and I'm. I'm happy that you have decided to use our framework to try to make a difference in these kids' lives. Uh, so when, when, when we take people into starting strength, uh, new clients are, are, uh, are people that have decided for themselves that stronger is better. Stronger is what they want to be. And we provide them a method by which to obtain that adaptation. We, uh, we take people that have never even thought about doing the basic barbell exercises that, you know, muscle heads have traditionally done. And uh, we provide them with a structure that, you know, is the basic exercises, five pounds of workout. And... One of the most amazing things about this is that that process, having never occurred to most people before, immediately begins to yield results. Immediately begins to yield results. And it is a process that applies to just damn near everything else they do in life. For your kids coming out of the service, this this can be a, a revelatory experience, can't it? Yes. Uh, 
I think you, you definitely used the right word there. Uh, you know, I, I could tell you lots of examples of veterans I've worked with personally who uh, just being told that they have agency and are, you know, there's that great line from The Departed, you know, I'd rather my environment be a product of me than me of my environment. Yeah. Um, just, just that planting that little seed in somebody's head <clears throat> can go a long way. And then obviously you back it up with the predictability of a process that, you know, like Nick mentioned. And so that's absolutely one of the consequences of being young kid, no other civilian work experience, maybe don't have great coping skills because you had, you know, a rough upbringing turned to the military because um, it was a paycheck. Now into the civilian world, uh, you may not have an accurate perception of what the possibilities are simply because you never considered, you know, your own potential and, and ability to change your circumstances. And, you know, it, I appreciate Nick bringing that up because that's a, that's a great point. This, this sense of agency that you get when you are in control of your own training uh, on the way in a very manageable sequence to certification it's very powerful well i think that it's uh the thing about it is that uh as it turns out one of the most uh beneficial aspects of our approach to to strength training is that it applies to everything else the person does. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's adequately appreciated. Uh, you're handing anybody that does this a tool that they can apply to everything else they do. Five more pounds, right? That's a, that's a very powerful. Uh, basic stuff, five more pounds. You know, it seems so obvious that... Uh, it, it's kind of astonishing that uh, no one else has articulated it before we did. Because it's just laying there, and it, and it works every single time it's tried with everybody that it's tried with. And a lot of people have, have uh, benefited from getting their shit together using the tools that they learned under the bar you know and and this is this certainly applies to these kids coming out of the coming out of the military and and looking for a uh, a new way to behave essentially a new way to behave once they separate completely agree um i really liked your you know, example, I think it was the first seminar I went to of uh, learning the trumpet. And that really resonated with me because one of the rehab activities I had was picking music back up. And I had yeah, to start I see your Coltrane really, poster really behind level. you. I see your Coltrane poster. Yeah. You a sax player? Yeah. No, I just, uh, he's one of my favorites. Uh, I Before I joined the military, I was thought I might be a jazz guitarist. Right. Um, yeah. So you still you so, you've picked it back up and you still play. 
I do. Um, it's coming back slowly, though. Honestly, I, I try and pretend that uh, I didn't have an injury because it makes it easier to right. cope with the, the loss of chops over the years. But right. you know, there may be some lingering effects. Well, I've been trying like hell for twenty four years to gain chops, and they just <laughs> they won't come. <laughs> Chops don't come for me. You're an intermediate. You're an intermediate phase of your trumpet. Playing. I am. I play the trumpet at the level of an average eighth grader. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I couldn't sit in third chair in a high school band. I, I really am, am not any better than that. But I have a lot of fun. <laughs> I have a lot of fun. Increase your training frequency. Increase the volume. Increase volume. Volume. Volume and intensity. <laughs> Stress recovery adaptation. Well, uh, well, John, uh, tell us what you have in mind as far as the process by which uh, people leaving a service commitment, people separating, can get a can work with us on this kind of a on this introduction introduction into your business and into our business specifically. Absolutely. Uh, startingstrengthgyms.com. Uh, click on the tab, How to Become a Coach. There's already a uh, box to check if you're a veteran. That gets directed directly, or that's get, excuse me, that gets sent directly to me, and we set up an appointment because of the red tape involved, it's usually better to do these things over a phone conversation. Um, but I'm happy to communicate. And, you know, I, the other day I was talking to somebody who was in Afghanistan. So we had to text, you know, you know that was fine. Um, and, you know, if, if you like what you hear, but you'd like to try something other than a career as a starting straight coach, my website is vetsmakeit.com which is V-E-T-S-M-A-K-E-I-T, and at Vets Make It on all the social media. And the bottom line is tailored mentorship. You know, we put your interests first. We like to find employers that have training pathways and are skilled trade, um, catering mostly to non-college educated um, younger veterans, but, you know, we, we will talk to anybody. If we don't have the answers, we'll find somebody that does. And I, you guys that are watching this, pay attention to the fact that we're not interested in your college education. Uh, what, what we do in gyms is very badly prepared for in college. Uh, those of you that, that – uh, uh, are entertaining the idea of going back to school and and going into the fitness industry with an edu exercise physiology background. Uh, that that works fine if you want to be a pin setter at a Globo gym, but it does not prepare you for what we do. What we do is prepared for by you training and you learning and you thinking about the process that we advocate in terms of getting you from where you are right now to stronger nine months down the road. What you learn in your own novice training progression under the bar 
is far, far more valuable than anything you will obtain in school. Uh, understanding physiology and the biology and, and the physics of all of this stuff is very, very important. But you can teach yourself that, and we can help you learn that. We have a coaching prep course. It's available on the website. And uh, that helps you get the background, the academic background you need to, to do the, uh, the things that you're going to have to do as a coach uh, in a gym. But if you think that you can go to uh, a, a school and get a four-year degree in exercise physiology and come out able to correctly coach a deadlift, you, you're, that's not what happens. I'm sorry, that's not what happens. And uh, it's a, it's a, I think that what we're saying is that the old expectation that you have to have a college degree to get anything done now is that's, that's rapidly losing its, its polish. Um, can I put a point on that? Oh yeah, please. I we we talk about this all the time. I I you know, uh, college is expensive, and if it's expensive as well as useless, don't do it. I uh, I've spoken to a lot of very successful builders, contractors, um, high six figures, lots of earning potential, and the one thing that they tell me. It's universal, is I can teach somebody skills, I can't teach them the right attitude. Right. Show up at the right place at the right time. And in, in, in a sound bite, uh, one builder in specific said, look, <clears throat> I'm only going to hire somebody if I'd also invite them to my house for Thanksgiving. And if you're getting out of the military, you know, let that sink in. It's not about credentials and you know, getting the degree alone. You got to have the right character to go along with it. Right. Oh, that's absolutely true. Uh, and a lot of that character, to to reiterate, is built under the barbell yourself. What you learn by taking your personal squat from one fifteen to three sixty five is what you have that is available to other people in this profession. And if you've never done that, you're, you're not the right person for what we want to get done. If you haven't done it, you're either not prepared or you have consciously refused to prepare, neither one of which is acceptable. You learn under the bar. You learn all kinds of things under the bar. You learn the kind of things under the bar that make the man want to invite you over for Thanksgiving dinner. I know that sounds grandiose, and uh, but but it's it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Some of the most valuable lessons that can only be learned this way are learned under the bar. How to finish the fifth rep of a set you don't know that you can do. Well, the way you learn that is you try it. 
And every time somebody does something, they learn something about themselves. No matter how long they've been training, they learn something about themselves. And we're eager to meet you if you have, uh, if you find yourself in this situation. We're eager to meet you. We can put you to work. And we, we want your experience because if you've come out of the military, you've, you've been in conflict and you've learned many good technical things and you've got a, a background that is structured and ordered, we can fit you into our program if you'll meet us halfway. And uh, I think John's uh, situation is uh, something that you need to investigate. John, thanks for being with us today on Starting Strength Radio. How do people how do people get a hold of you? Uh, the website is vetsmakeit.com, V-E-T-S-M-A-K-E-I-T.com. Uh, the same for Instagram handle. Uh, scheduled appointment, no commitment, uh, no commitment necessary. Okay. Uh, email, you can just find you at that website. Vetsmakeit.com. Correct, yeah, just in it. Yep, info at vetsmakeit.com. Okay. Right. Okay. Well, thank you, John Miller. Appreciate your, your being here. We're glad to have you associated with us. Uh, it's uh, guys like you that demonstrate the value of what we do. And uh, we're happy to have made whatever contribution to your situation we've made, and we're looking forward to you making a similar contribution to ours. Thank you so much, Rip. I really thanks appreciate again, it. Thanks again, John. And thank you guys for watching us. We'll see you next week on Starting Strength Radio.